Welcome back to Yang Daily. I'll be your host, Alex Cheney, bringing you all the Yang news you need to live your life right. Sorry for the delay on this episode. You may recall that a family member was having some medical procedures a couple of weeks ago. Well, yesterday we got the news that they will need chemotherapy for cancer. It's not a happy time here. Expect some disruptions in the schedule going forward, as I will sometimes need to prioritize assisting them. Not very conducive to productive mindset either. Anyway, it seems I got carried away with EV news today, as I tend to do. I did warn that we would talk more about the reconciliation bill. It's not my fault that it's complicated and important. Let's roll. Quick shout out to our tier 3 patrons, Shay Meehan and Nathan Stankowski, as well as all our other patrons. You keep us all informed and engaged. If any of you out there want to join these advocates of humanity first and independent journalism, head on over to patreon.com slash yangdaily. It would only take a couple of bucks a month from each listener to keep this podcast and community going and growing into the future. Now on to the news. First off, the Supreme Court began oral arguments today on the Texas abortion law. Based on their comments, it appears six of the justices find the law legally questionable. In addition to the obvious violation of Roe v. Wade, the justices object to the enforcement ploy designed to make it hard for anyone to challenge the law in court. But it's all preliminary for now. We will have to wait and see what the ruling is. So this whole world hunger debate has drawn in even Yang now, so I guess we should talk about it a bit. Basically what happened is the World Food Program said that 2% of Elon Musk's wealth, $6 billion, could help solve world hunger by feeding millions more people than they are currently able to reach. News media predictably sensationalized it, misquoting by removing the word help so that it read that the WFP said Musk could solve world hunger. Of course, Musk got inundated by this and eventually said that if the WFP could tell him in detail how $6 billion could solve world hunger, he would do it. So that's the backstory. The WFP response was to correct the misquote. Then Yang tweeted that he thinks Musk should give that money to give directly instead the charity that runs basic income pilots and gives people unconditional cash. While I agree with the direction that Andrew is going, I actually agree with past Andrew that we need to go further than that. Yang has said in the past that charity cannot solve systemic problems like poverty, of which hunger is a subset. That is what government is needed for. He also said that lobbying produces enormous returns on investment, as he believes Humanity Forward's lobbying for the stimulus checks and child tax credit did, and I agree. I'm tired of just mitigating poverty and hunger and access to health care and everything else, as we've been doing for centuries. I want to solve it. We can solve poverty with UBI, and UBI will be the biggest first step towards solving all the rest, especially hunger. If I had $6 billion to spend, I'd spend it incentivizing support for democracy reform and UBI, the same policy goals as Forward Party. As distasteful as lobbying is, we need systematic governmental reforms to solve the big issues, including the way that government works, to make it respond more to the people and less to money. Speaking of Musk's wealth, the run-up on Tesla stock continued over the past week. Musk is now worth more than Bezos and Bill Gates combined, at a third of a trillion dollars. Tesla is now worth more than every other auto company combined, and they are so overwhelmed by demand that the waitlist to get a Model 3 is now one year. I think it's safe to say the EV revolution has arrived. Also, remember how we talked about the importance of charging networks? Well, Tesla just announced that they are opening their supercharger network to all EVs in the Netherlands. This is big news, and I have mixed feelings on it. 
I had assumed that they would not open the network to all EVs because it would clog the chargers. I was clearly at least partially wrong about that. They're saying that they will only open it in areas where there are plenty of chargers to handle the extra load, which is good. The Netherlands was at the top of that list. However, the supercharger network still needs to be built out the world over. It only covers a small percentage of countries so far, and even in the most focused of those, there are still areas where demand is greater than charger supply. If they want to open the network everywhere eventually, they'll need to dramatically increase the pace of charger installation, and I'm not sure how that's going to happen since they've already been struggling to keep pace, and money has not been the limiting factor, and I'm not sure what is the limiting factor. On the other hand, it does seem the job of a charging infrastructure for all EVs will fall to Tesla, given that Legacy Auto have, as in all other EV respects, proven unwilling or unable to get it done. So I think opening Tesla's network is the needed solution, but they will need to accelerate their build rate somehow. And continuing this stream of consciousness, let's quickly discuss the EV tax credit in the reconciliation bill, because it's quite a mess, quite consequential to solving climate change and getting us better vehicles, and a good example in how our government works. The host of Tesla Daily Podcast breaks this down in much more detail, which I will leave in the links for those interested. But basically, Democrats are proposing a collection of large tax credits, each with their own conditions. First, there is the base credit of $4,000, which applies to not just full EVs, but anything with at least a 10 kilowatt hour battery that can plug in. 10 kilowatt hours is quite small, enough for only something like 30 miles of range. It's a hybrid battery, not a full EV. Then there is a further $3,500 credit for batteries above 40 kilowatt hours, so full EVs. Then there is a third $4,500 credit for the car being assembled in the U.S. and $500 for the parts being made in the U.S., except the United Auto Workers Union also got them to include the condition that it must be union-made, which, coincidentally, excludes Tesla from the biggest credit because Tesla workers chose stock compensation instead. Boy, was that a good choice. And despite Tesla's sold in the U.S. having a greater percentage of parts and labor sourced here than Ford or GM. So, that means a full EV made in the U.S. by GM and Ford could get credits totaling $12,500. That is a lot of money. Quite frankly, a lot more money than necessary. Tesla has already proven that EVs can be sold profitably at a fair price with high demand without any credits whatsoever. Tesla has not qualified for the current tax credits for over a year now, and demand is higher than ever. That said, legacy auto companies have not been able to replicate Tesla's success with EVs, partly because they didn't want to. You could say that's an argument they need more help. You could also say that's an argument for letting them be replaced by more competent competition, if only there were enough of it. Here's the problem with the credits. They may actually slow the transition to EVs due to how lax the conditions are. GM and Ford can produce a 10 kilowatt hour hybrid and get two-thirds of that $12,000, the same amount that Tesla would get for producing full EVs. Now, it's not that plug-in hybrids are terrible. For people who drive only very short distances each day, it can make sense to have a small battery for that and a gas engine for long trips if that all costs less than a full EV's large battery pack. But there are a number of problems with hybrids. They still require all the maintenance of an ICV, they have the same limited lifespan, and are sometimes duplicitous. Some hybrids will turn on the gas engine to go up hills, for instance, because their small battery and motor are too weak to handle it, meaning you could be polluting even on short-range trips. 
but most importantly, they don't necessarily cost less than an EV that is capable of long road trips, especially if you look at total cost of ownership rather than just the upfront cost. And in that case, hybrids are basically just an inferior solution in the end. Legacy automakers have been dragging their heels on EVs from start to finish because they don't make as much profit from them. If the credits are only applied to full EVs, it would help those companies to make the switch. Instead, GM and Ford lobbied our politicians to get the credits to apply to their companies, not Tesla, and to hybrids so that they can continue making internal combustion engines, which is what they know how to do, and provides lots of revenue from all the maintenance that those engines require. Basically, they got the government to pay them to keep dragging their heels, slowing progress, and screwing everyone. My concern with this is not that it will put Tesla at a disadvantage, they'll be fine. My concern is two-thirds of the credits are effectively government-funded bailouts for Legacy Auto to continue sabotaging the transition to electric vehicles and continue stagnating rather than innovating. It's kleptocracy, and I will be telling my representatives to ditch the credit for hybrids and the union condition for the domestic credit. The last thing we need to be doing is spending money sabotaging ourselves. And that'll do it for today's Tang Daily. Bookmark and share the tax credits episode. Flood Congress with calls, tweets, faxes, and letters using the easy volunteer contacts below. If you need help, consult the Income Movement Aid Database, the Mission Asset Fund, or United Way. And don't forget to Yang Daily.